It's Wednesday, April 10th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. As more shakeups in the Trump administration are happening, we're going to take a look at how the president likes to narrate exits and maintain the final word when people depart. Outgoing DHS head Kristen Nielsen got a 21-word tweet, while Linda McMahon got a great goodbye at Mar-a-Lago in front of cameras when she left her post at the Small Business Administration. Daniel Littman, reporter at Politico, joins us for how optics matter when the president gets rid of you. Next, an update on Operation Varsity Blues, the college admissions cheating scandal. Lori Lachlan, her husband, and 14 others just got indicted on new charges of money laundering, a day after Felicity Huffman and 12 other parents pled guilty to lesser charges. Prosecutors are offering deals to everyone, but they all carry some jail time. My producer Miranda joins us for all the updates. Finally, Attorney General William Barr went before Congress to testify about the president's budget request for the Department of Justice. And it didn't take long before Democrats asked all about when he would release the full Mueller report. A.G. Barr said that the redacted version would be released within a week. Sadie German, Justice Department reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how William Barr's hearing went. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I want to thank the president again for the tremendous opportunity to serve this country. I'm forever grateful and proud of the men and women of DHS who work so hard every day to execute their missions and to protect the homeland. I've spent the last 24 hours since yesterday talking with government officials, with administration officials, members of Congress to ensure a smooth transition. Joining us now is Daniel Lippman, co-author of the Politico Playbook. We've been talking a lot about the shakeups at the Department of Homeland Security. Foremost, Kirsten Nielsen, the former Department of Homeland Security secretary, she has put in her resignation. Some say she was fired. There's all sorts of stuff going on. But there's a lot of shakeups going on. And Daniel, you wrote a piece about the president's style when it comes to firing people. And it takes a look back at some of the other high-profile departures from the White House. This is a president who always wants to control the narrative around these departures. He seems to never have let go of the apprentice days where he wants to be the one doing the firing. He wants it, he wants it to be done on his terms. So tell us a little bit about this. He is obsessed with optics, and he doesn't want to look like people are abandoning him and his administration. He wants to set the narrative around why people are leaving. And so in the case of people like Nikki Haley and Linda McMahon, who is the head of the Small Business Administration, he's happy to give them a long send-off for McMahon. It was like 13 minutes or so of everyone saying how great each other were at Mar-a-Lago. And for Nikki Haley, she went into the Oval Office and you know they had their farewell there. But for others, it's terse tweets. It's talking about how bad that person was at their job or that they disagreed with them. And so this is kind of the style of how the Trump administration and President Trump deals with people. He kind of throws them away once he's done with them and does not help their public reputations, which hurts their career prospects. Yeah, let's talk about Kirsten Nielsen. She got a 21-word tweet from the president that basically announced she was leaving. Let's recount a little bit about the story that happened behind there. By all accounts, Kirsten Nielsen had her resignation letter. She went into a meeting with the president not knowing what she was going to do. Was she going to be fired? Was she going to resign? Or was she going to stay in her position a little bit longer? Apparently, during the conversation, they decided that they were going to go separate ways But before Kirsten Nielsen was able to submit her resignation letter circulated publicly, the president beat her to the punch. He tweeted out that she was leaving. And 
that's kind of the way the president operates a lot. If, if he can try to get the jump on you, he will. If not, after the fact, he'll try to spin it in his own way. People sometimes have to rush out their resignation letters to beat the president. But as one source told me, it's very hard to beat someone who takes them 15 seconds to tap out a tweet. And then the public narrative has kind of set. And I was talking to one person who said, the way you depart is sets the frame for how you're viewed by history and by the media. So if you get fired, like Rex Tillerson, then people will say, oh, everyone hated you. You were not good at dealing with the establishment. You were bad at your job. Not You couldn't handle the media. And then if you resign, then you're kind of viewed as an American hero. You stood up to Trump. You had your disagreements. You were standing up for, you're kind of an American in a person who's standing up for rule of law and order. And so that has a huge impact on how people are perceived. And so this is something that senior administration officials have to keep their resignation letters at the ready just in case they fall on hard times. Talk about Defense Secretary Jim Mattis and how he left, because he circulated a resignation letter before his visit to the White House. And then Trump basically went back later and said, well, I essentially fired the guy. I don't know how you can view it as firing when the person had a legitimate resignation letter. What's complicated is that you come to sometimes will get ahead of that and know that you're going to get fired if you stay in your job for much longer. And so they try to have a mutual agreement that we should leave and we should kind of like split up it's like a relationship a little bit. And that Mattis letter really singed the president because you know Mattis was very critical on Syria and America's engagement with the world. And that was seen as an attack on Trump. And so that's why he wanted to get back at Mattis and view him as weak and undercut uh, him and say that he had fired him. One of the just funny departures was that of Anthony Scaramucci, who was the White House communications director for, I think it was 11 days. It was very short lived after he gave an interview with the New Yorker reporter. And he admits, he says, I did something fireable. I should have, you know, I could have been fired for it. He just said he would have preferred not to have gone like an Austin Powers villain, which is kind of a funny way to picture it. That's what we did as the headline. Probably the only time I put Austin Powers in a headline. (laughs) Right. And so he left after 10 days and was fired by General Kelly. He had talked to Ryan Lizzie, who was then a reporter for The New Yorker. And he probably had the shortest tenure of any White House senior aide. And he thinks that the landings are softer now for people and that it's easier for Trump to stage manage these. But he did not want to fight for his job and you know go up against the president. But he felt that he should have been treated better, given that he had been a top surrogate for the campaign. He had raised a lot of money. He had donated money, worked on the campaign in an important capacity. And so that was kind of the crazy summer when, yeah. you know, lots of stuff was going down. Yeah. But like you said, the way you go is so important. A lot of people say that the president definitely demands loyalty, but he rarely returns it. You guys spoke to veterans, former veterans affairs secretary, David Shulkin. And he says that he said that he gets asked all the time, should I put my hat in the ring? Should I try to work at the white house or, or, you know, do some of this type of work? Is it something that I want to put myself and my family through? And, you know, he says, yeah, you should understand what's going on, but that's how people feel. It's like they see some of these departures and the tweets that follow or the preemptive tweets. And they're like, man, is this something I even want to go for? Yeah, it's very hard to attract top talent when any time you get in, it really does not lead to a good end result. It's not pretty. And so why would you go in? It would only hurt your reputation mostly. And so the people they're left with is and are not as talented folks. And it, it makes it really hard to recruit good people. And Trump, remember, he said he'd only attract the you know, best and the brightest to serve in America. But that is not what he's getting. It's, he's getting people who you know, want to be, who would not be considered for these types of jobs in any other administration that was a more normal presidency. 
Daniel Littman, co-author of The Political Playbook. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Throughout the investigation and our investigation of each of these targets, we have not seen the schools as co-conspirators with this activity. In some instances, however, the child did know. And in fact, there's an instance in the complaint affidavit where a particular defendant and his daughter are on a conference call with Singer to discuss the scam. Joining me now is my producer, Miranda. I want to get an update on Operation Varsity Blues, the college cheating admission scandal. We have a round of people who have pled guilty and then others who did not plead guilty but and have been indicted on new charges. Let's start there. Most notably, Lori Lachlan and 15 others now have been indicted on new charges in this admission scandal. What do we know about that, Miranda? Well, since Lori Lachlan and her husband refused the plea deal because they wanted conditions where they would see zero jail time, Now they're looking to get indicted by the grand jury. They added charges of money laundering, and this now drastically increases the amount of time Lori Loughlin and her husband would get as a minimum recommended sentence. Specifically, the U.S. attorney says that Loughlin, her husband, and 14 others will now be charged with the additional crime of conspiracy to launder the bribes and other payments in furtherance of the fraud by funneling them through Rick Singer's purported charity and his for-profit corporation. So now... If you look at it, money laundering charges alone carry maximum of 20 years in prison. Yeah, that was part of the way the scam worked is that families would give money to Rick Singer's charity. and Charity then, in quotes. Yeah, charity in quotes. And then they would funnel the money to the coaches and other people that way. But the parents would also be able to write off the taxes for those charitable donations. So that's where this money laundering charge comes through. Rumors are that the prosecutors are giving everybody chances at some type of plea deal, but they're giving some type of jail sentence on everything. They want everybody to know that it's very possible that you could serve some type of jail time, depending on how much money you paid into the whole scheme. Let's take Felicity Huffman, for example. She paid $15,000 to a 36-year-old Harvard graduate to doctor her daughter's SAT scores to score 400 points higher than what she actually scored. And she was in court on Monday and she, along with 12 other parents, pled guilty to their charges. It's looking like Felicity Huffman could serve as little as four months in prison or as much as 10 months. So when you look at that and compare their $15,000 to Lori Loughlin's $500,000 and with the charges of conspiracy to launder money on top of it, she's going to face a ton of time in prison. Yeah. And the people that are in that group with Lori Lachlan, it was just funny to see that one of the parents there was the heiress to the Hot Pockets fortune. Yeah, and Like I said, these people are, I don't know, they're risking it all. They're playing it out to see how far they can take it. It's kind of a tough situation to imagine many of these parents really facing any serious type of jail time. And that might be why they're not pleading guilty. I, people magazine spoke to certain sources and they said that Lori Lachlan, they're not ready to accept any type of deal with jail time. Mm -hmm. And they're just not seeing how serious this whole thing is. Yeah, they're not accepting the gravity of the situation, especially now that they're facing both Lori Lachlan and her husband, Massimo, up to 20 years in prison for each charge that they could be convicted on. The source told People Magazine they decided to roll the dice and it may have been a bad gamble. They're in worse shape than they were a week ago. Yeah, exactly. These extra charges for nothing almost. There is a law professor named Rory Little talking about how the prosecutors are wielding this plea pressure right now. They really 
are throwing everybody, hey, this is the best deal you can get. Just plead guilty and you won't face as much possible jail time. And they're playing an aggressive game is what he says. He's not saying it's wrong or anything, but it's very aggressive. And some of these families just don't want to do it. They might want to just take their chances in court. Speaking about Felicity Huffman, as you said, who pled guilty, let's talk about the statement that she released. Part of this whole thing is they want everybody to accept guilt and say they're sorry for this whole thing. And in Felicity Huffman's on the record statement, you do kind of feel that sorriness. She is feeling the gravity of the situation. Made me feel sorry for her. Yeah. What did she say? She pled guilty to the charges brought against her and that she fully accepts her guilt with deep regret and shame over what she's done. She's accepting full responsibility for her actions and will accept all of the consequences that stem from the actions. She goes on to say that she's ashamed of the pain she's caused her daughter, her family, her friends, and the educational community. She wanted to apologize to students who work hard every day to get into college and to the parents who make sacrifices to support their kids and get them into school honestly. Yeah, she said her daughter didn't know anything about her actions And that one kind of makes sense. I mean, she paid the guy after to doctor the SAT Mm -hmm. scores. And then she said she betrayed her. Let's talk a little bit more about some of the fallout that has happened from all of this. Felicity Huffman has a couple of projects in the works. One of them is this Netflix movie, and that's been pulled from the schedule. Another project is going to stay in place, though. The one that's going to go is called Otherhood. It's starring Felicity Huffman, Angela Bassett, Patricia Arquette, about three moms who moved to New York to be closer to their adult children. That was supposed to debut later this month, but that's been shelved and it's not been rescheduled yet. Another piece that she's doing, Huffman has a supporting role in a new Ava DuVernay limited series called When They See Us about the Central Park Five case. She plays the prosecutor and that's still set to premiere May 31st. Stanford University just expelled a student whose admission was followed by a large donation to the school's sailing program. Stanford's sailing program received three donations totaling $770,000 from the Key Worldwide. That's Rick Singer's charitable organization. Two of those donations were from families of two prospective Stanford students. Neither of them were admitted to the school. And the third came from this student a $500,000 donation, and she has no ties to the sailing program. So we'll see how this story continues to progress. Thanks, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. Since my confirmation, I do think it's important that the public have an opportunity to, to, to learn the results of the, of, uh, the special counsel's work. From my standpoint, uh, by the by, uh, within a week, I will be in a position to release the report to the public. Joining us now is Sadie German, Justice Department reporter for The Wall Street Journal. It was the first appearance for Attorney General William Barr since the release of the Mueller report. He was before Congress for a hearing on the Justice Department's budget, and immediately Democrats jumped in and said, hey, well, tell us all about this Mueller report. What happened? Well, this was a chance for the Attorney General to discuss his budgetary priorities, but Democrats immediately turned to the Mueller report, and it was clear from the outset that the AG knew he had to sort of appease them somehow. And so he basically said, you know, I'm going to have this report available for delivery to Congress within a week. So we don't know exactly when he's going to be providing it to Congress, but we do know that he's making progress. Yeah, I know. I've already seen a bunch of speculation. Is there going to be a Friday night dump or, you know, something like that? Or will it be middle of next week? Everybody's just kind of raring to get their hands on this. And he's getting a lot of criticism. Uh, Obviously, 
Nobody would have been happy with the rollout of the information of the report, but everybody really has uh, is taken a lot of issue with that four page summary that he put out basically saying that there was uh, no collusion and basically no obstruction of justice, although that's part of the murky territory. And Democrats really want that full report. So he's taking his time to uh, go through some redactions. And that's what we expect to see within a week. Yes, that's right. He's planning to release what should be a pretty heavily redacted report. Basically, it's a 400-page report, but we do expect much of it to be blacked out. He's looking for things in particular like grand jury material that can't be released under law to the public. And then he's also looking for information on confidential sources and methods, information about people who are involved in an investigation but have not been charged with a crime, among other things. So he and his aides and a member of Mueller's team have been looking at this document for a couple of weeks now, and that's what we expect to see within a week. They even said they're going to color code some of the redactions with notes explaining why that's being redacted specifically. That's right. And I think that's an effort to allay concerns, particularly among Democrats, that they will just see a blacked out document with no explanation. Barr tried to allay some of those concerns by saying that he will color code the document. There was a lot of Democrats that were saying that Robert Mueller's team had provided summaries of certain parts of the entire report for uh, Mr. Barr to see, but he obviously didn't include that in, in the summary that he put out. What was his reasoning for that? Right. He said he did not want to release summaries, and particularly those summaries, because all of them had grand jury information present throughout them. So it would have required redacting anyway. And he said he didn't want to get into the habit of releasing a summary, especially with information that he wouldn't be able to legally release. What were Republicans doing during the hearing? Republicans tried to focus the hearing on the budgetary priorities that Barr had outlined. But there was also some commentary that about the investigation as being sort of a distraction, a waste of time, especially because we know the principal conclusions. And so some of the Republicans said that this was a sideshow by the Democrats for political point scoring. The next thing that's really going to happen is once the redacted report comes out, the collusion stuff, I think that will kind of start falling by the wayside. But everybody's going to really be focusing on the obstruction of justice because that's where Robert Mueller left it unclear. He said there's evidence to it. There's evidence against it. I'm not making the determination. You guys are. That's going to be the the real focus there. And then after that comes all the spin, whether it be from Democrats and Republicans or the White House itself. Yes, I think the biggest, obviously, unanswered question that we have is why the special counsel's office was unable or chose not to come to a conclusion about whether the president obstructed justice and, consequently, why Barr decided to take it upon himself to make that decision. Barr obviously did not say anything about that. He said he's not releasing information piecemeal, but that is a major question that we expect and hope the report will answer. And uh, William Barr also said that he's going to be reviewing the conduct of the FBI's 2016 probe of the Trump team. Would it what happened there? So the Justice Department's inspector general has, for about a year now, been investigating the origins of the Russia investigation and whether law enforcement officers overstepped their authority in to secretly surveil a Trump campaign advisor. So the Justice Department's already been looking at that, and he said that he expects some findings within a few months there. The story is going to be ongoing. It's not over. We're going to wait for this report, hopefully sooner rather than later. And then comes all the spin and all the other exciting stuff that happens. Sadie German, Justice Department reporter with the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment. 
give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.